redeeming love. And that is our theme here at Highlands, uh, to know that you have been loved by God, that he gave you his son as a gift so that you might be forgiven of the sins that you are guilty of, that I'm guilty of. Uh, Often when we sing um, about the thief on the cross, though vile as he, um, I think an honest person might be able to sing, though viler than he. And that often comes to mind. Um, It's good to see you this morning. I hope you do know that you are loved by God with a loyal and steadfast love. I hope you're having a good march so far and all the flus that are going around. Uh, It's been a delight to have my parents in and uh, spend some time with them just across the border looking at God's magnificent creation. And um, two things last forever. People and God's word. And so may your life be filled with both of them, uh, because that's what really matters. Please turn with me in your scriptures to Obadiah. We are moving through the minor prophets quickly. There's 12 of them. We are on our fourth. Obadiah, out of all the minor prophets, is the most minor. What do we mean by that? He's the shortest. So, young people, children, uh, Obadiah only has 21 verses. It takes three minutes to read out loud. So, if you want to impress your parents tomorrow, read Obadiah and come up and say you read an entire Old Testament book in one sitting. See, 21 verses. Uh, There are 11 other men in the scripture named Obadiah. There is no reason to think this is any of those. As a matter of fact, because he's the most minor, he's the shortest Uh, He doesn't take any time to explain who he is or really where he's from. His prophecy will give us an idea of the timing. Um, His message is quick and decisive. His name, and he is appropriately called Obadiah, which means servant or worshiper of Yahweh. He is fit to carry a message to those who do not worship Yahweh. Who are not servants of Yahweh. Look at verse 1, right? No chapters, so just verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning, concerning Edom. Now, since Obadiah's prophecy is directly toward the nation of Edom, we should learn something about these people in this country. Who are they? Or we should say, who were they? Okay, what did they do and where did they live? Obadiah unpacks a long history between two nations. The Israel versus Edom rivalry is more than just two nations that don't get along. Let me explain. Back in Genesis 3, God makes a promise. The very same chapter where Adam and Eve chose to sin, God promises them that through the seed of the woman, a deliverer rescuer would come. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham that he would get both land and a people, uh, which is more than the stars could be numbered. And in that land, there is a mountain, Mount Zion. And it also comes with this interesting promise that whoever blesses you, I will bless And what's the second part? Whoever curses you, I will curse. 
That blessing was passed on to Isaac, Abraham's son, in Genesis 21 and 26. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, had two twins. What are their names? Hey, good. Jacob and Esau. Uh, God told Rebekah that one would prevail and that Esau would serve Jacob, right? The, the older, the elder would serve the younger. So this is the picture of what's going on. Esau's descendants, as they move into their own land, because God also gives them a land, Esau's descendants become the nation of Edom. Okay, so Obadiah's prophecy to this nation Edom, he's, he's directly talking to Esau's descendants. Both had an inheritance, both had a mountain, only one was God's chosen people. Of course, if you know that Edom, Edom is off to the southeast, and then Israel, not quite yet a nation, uh, is taken by God's providential hand through a famine, through Joseph's invite. Remember this, he is, he is sold by his brothers, he goes down to Egypt, and now Jacob moves down to Goshen. There they go into slavery under a foreign power. God miraculously delivers them. He does that through signs and wonders. One of those gets a name. It's called the Passover. And if they would apply blood to the doorposts, then the death angel would pass over these people. They leave. Finally, it gets, a, it gets Pharaoh's attention and they leave and they go now out into the wilderness and they're backed up against the Red Sea. They thought, for sure, they thought for sure God had entrapped them, set them up, but then all of a sudden God separates the sea. You remember this. So death passes over, and now they pass through the sea as a picture of God's judgment passing through. They get onto the other side. Of course, you know the story about the Egyptian army. And the quickest way into the land that was promised to Abraham was through Edom. The problem is, Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom requesting to pass through their land. Numbers 20 records this. Listen to the term. Thus says your brother Israel. Remember, Jacob and Esau are brothers. Thus says your brother Israel. You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt. And we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And they requested to pass through the land. They wouldn't, they wouldn't take anything of Esau's descendants in that land. They simply wanted to pass through. And they responded, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now that was God's plan anyway. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, learning to depend on God, being shaped by God, being formed into a nation. And after the reigns of David and Solomon, God providentially again allows Babylon to go in and destroy and lead into exile in 586 B.C. Israel. And what did Edom do? What did the brother do? The brother rejoiced that Babylon went in and attacked. The brother looted Jerusalem. 
when people tried to run and escape, the brother Edom cut off the fugitives. And the ones they could find, they delivered over to this pagan nation, Babylon. And that's what Obadiah's message is about. It is about Edom oppressing his brother nation. In 1812, a Swiss explorer named Johann Burckhardt had heard rumors of an ancient city southeast of the Dead Sea. It was controlled by Arabs at the time, and so he could not pass through. So he told them that he wanted to sacrifice a goat to Aaron, Moses' brother. And that traditional burial place is on Mount Hor, which is in Edom. It's in the center part of that country. So the Arabs did not refuse this man wanting to make such a holy vow, so they allowed him access. So he travels through the arid Jordan desert, and he comes to this narrow cleft. It's about, it's about a half mile long and sometimes only five feet in expanse with towering cliffs up above his head. And it zigzags back and forth, and it finally comes out to what they call an engineering masterpiece. And it's called the Kazne. Now, that was made popular by Indiana Jones. I forget which collection, The Last Crusade. But this was a Swiss explorer who had originally moved in because he had heard rumors about this lost civilization. After other experts traveled after Johann Burkhardt, they said, because of the design, it would be possible for 12 men to hold the city against an army. Through the Kazne, he entered and he found the ruins of a lost civilization, once called Selah or Seir, but now Petra, which is the name most of you would know this ancient civilization by. You can Google a picture of this and the entryway and the Kazne and the remains. And they call Petra one of the world's most mysterious ancient cities. Here's my question as we open up Obadiah. Is Petra and its vanished people really a mystery? Obadiah 1. If you could explain the entire book of Obadiah with one proverb, it would be Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Look at, look at Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her, against Edom, for battle. The first nine verses contain the judgment against Edom. God is stirring up the nations to move in on this seeming impregnable fortress called Petra and attack this nation. God now addresses Edom directly through Obadiah. Look at verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how, how, how have you been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. This is a comprehensive destruction that is being prophesied. Verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Why is God judging Edom? The defining sin in this first section is in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. What was Edom proud about? And, and I think this is where we need to be, be careful that we don't remove the tension that we feel in Obadiah as we, we look into this text and evaluate where we stand before the Lord. Edom had pride in their security and comfort. Edom had strong natural defenses. They lived in the clefts of the rock. They're, they had lofty dwellings. They had this maze of, of a fissure of huge cliffs and canyons above them. So that they said, who can bring me down to the ground? Not only did they have pride in their security and comfort, they had pride in their relationships. Edom had strong allies. Verse 7. So you could say this. They were overconfident in their network of alliances. Something else they were proud about. They were, pride in, they were proud in their wisdom and strength. Verse 8. For example, one of Job's so-called friends, Eliphaz, was a Temanite. Look at verse 9. O Teman. So Esau boasted in their mighty men of valor. They boasted in their wise men. They boasted in their allies. They boasted in their security and their comfort. So here's the picture. In 586, Israel is sacked and led off into exile. They're not on their mountain that God gave them. They're not on the holy, in the holy city, Jerusalem. But Edom is. Edom sits secure Israel is scattered. Edom lives together. Edom even plundered Jerusalem and seems to have gotten away with it. This is going to be very important because what seems to be and what truly is are often different. Yes, people's perception is their reality, but it may not be the reality. It seems they got away with it. And what is at risk here is will God keep his covenant or not? Or we might not ask it that way. We'll ask this. Is God just or not? Because it seems like people are getting away with evil, doesn't it? It seems like for long periods of time, generation through generation, people are sinning and getting by with it. They're doing evil. They're inflicting harm on people. They're oppressing God's people. So is God just or not? Will he keep his covenant or not? Remember the defining sin. 
pride has deceived you. I think we're, we're a people, we're a nation that tolerates pride. Let me give you an example. Uh, we might talk about how well a, a young person plays an instrument. And we might say, you know, he or she is brilliant on that instrument, but a little arrogant. But we would never say he or she is brilliant on that instrument, but at times a bit murderous. You see the difference? We tolerate one while the other one is just clear, right? She's a good girl, just a bit violent. No, you can't be good and violent. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Pride is categorized along with what? Murder. Proverbs 8.13 Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God says. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 16.18, and I think this describes the book of Obadiah. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride has deceived their heart. But just to show that God is just for what he's about to do, look at the specific charges against Edom. So, yes, pride goes before destruction. But secondly, pride is violent and cruel. Look at Obadiah 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. Remember Proverbs 11:12. when pride comes, then comes disgrace. And you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You see, Edom's pride had shown itself during Israel's deepest need and humiliation. And they came in along with the foreign enemy and they cheered them on. Interesting, when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, Psalm 137.7, listen to what it says about that event. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. Okay, that's when the Babylonians came in. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. So as the enemy comes in and attacks Jerusalem, here's what the Edomites are doing. Raise it to the ground. Total annihilation. That's what pride looks like. Edom and Israel were brother nations. Listen to Deuteronomy 23.7. As God is giving his law to his people, the Israelites, listen to what God does to protect the Edomites. He says in Deuteronomy 23, you shall not abhor or hate an Edomite for he is your brother. That was God's mercy to this nation. But it's a two-way road. The relationship is two-sided. Look at Obadiah verse 10. Because of the violence done to your 
It doesn't say neighbor, though they were neighboring nations, done to your brother. So the Edomites should have viewed Israel as a brother and the Israelites should have viewed the Edomites as brothers. Here's what pride looks like. Look at verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. What does pride look like? Pride is violent. Remember when Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees were very good at keeping the exact law. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Remember that? And Jesus says, but I say unto you, do not be angry with your brother without a cause. See, it's like murder. Pride and anger is like murder. Verse 11, Edom stood aloof when strangers carried off his brother's wealth. Verse 11, when foreigners entered Judah's, Jerusalem's gates and cast lots, Edom like, was like one of them. Edom gloated over the day of his brother's misfortune. Ha, see? Yes, they deserve it. Verse 12, Edom rejoiced in the day of his brother's ruin. Edom boasted in the day of his brother's distress. Edom gloated over Israel's calamity. Edom looted his brother's wealth. Edom stood at the crossroads and cut off his fugitives and handed over his survivors to the enemy. Ezekiel calls this out as well. Listen to Ezekiel 35. I am against you, Mount Seir. That's Esau's descendants. That's Petra. This is the Mount of Esau. God says, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you cherished, listen to this, because Ezekiel is going to highlight the defining sin. You cherished perpetual enmity. Let me ask you, does your life always Create sinful conflict. Always resistant. Do you cherish perpetual enmity? Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment, I am against you. Look at how it started. Jacob and Esau. Brothers, individual friction. Then Edom's refusal to allow the brother nation to pass through after having already been oppressed by a foreign power, Egypt. Group or national friction, individual friction into group or national friction. And then from that national friction, specific and heinous sins of violence, Obadiah one. Folks, we... We don't view pride the same way God does, do we? If you do not kill pride, pride will kill you. 
It will ruin individuals. It will ruin marriages. It will ruin churches. It will ruin families. It will ruin nations. We either put pride to death or we let pride flourish and let it lead us to destruction. I think this is why God says that He loves when brothers dwell together in what? In unity. It's like that cool, clear water that runs off the mountains in the, to the north of Israel. It's like the oil that flows down on Aaron's beard. So the Lord loves when brothers dwell together in unity. And then finally this morning, look at verse 15. And what you're going to see here is poetic justice. This is uh, a literary term used when at the end, the very things that people had done wrong, they meet with. Poetic justice, the day of the Lord. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is the inescapable principle of sowing and reaping. Jesus taught this too, right? If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. It's not that there's a different Old Testament God up in heaven that is different than Jesus, right? If you've seen Jesus full of grace and truth, you've seen who? You have seen the Father. And Jesus is going to quote this or at least say the same thing in Matthew 7 too. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, now what does that look like as far as Edom as a nation? Look at verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, where is that? Right? Both, both Jacob and Esau got a mountain. <laughs> and Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. And the Edomites went in after the Babylonians or with the Babylonians and looted them and looted their wine and sat there on Mount Zion, having decimated God's people and drank on God's holy hill. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. This is a prophecy. This hasn't happened yet. Edom, because you did that. Enemy nations will come inside of you, what we know today as Petra, and they will drink and drink and drink until you're gone. Verse 17, in contrast, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Right? You looted him. But he's going to get his wealth back. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble that the flame licks up. Why? Because God keeps covenant. God keeps covenant. Abraham asks this when when he sees this city that Lot had gone into, he asks, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer to his question is yes. The judge of all the earth does do what is right. The house of Esau stubble. 
They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Petra, one of the greatest mystery cities in the world. The glimpse of the Lord's Day was partially fulfilled when Edom was brought down from Mount Seir, when Edom was plundered, and when Israel was gathered back to her land. But again, we're going to see that the day of the Lord is already and not yet. We've already seen a glimpse of another fulfillment of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. But look at that last phrase. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, from our New Testament perspective, we have a privilege of looking back and seeing how Obadiah's prophecy is actually on much, a much grander scale than even Obadiah would have understood. Uh, what is happening here, if, if you understand, yes, the land of Israel is in question. But that last verse says what? And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Jesus teaches in Matthew that the meek, right? And the reason that Mount Zion will be holy is because humble people have called out. Humble, repentant people have called out to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This does affect us. And if we move into a time period where we as God's people are oppressed, even though we think we're safe and we're here in the high clefts of the rock, but even if the time comes when we are oppressed, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The promises will be fulfilled. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Listen to Psalm 22 when it talks about the kingship of Christ or of Messiah. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust. Everyone eventually will bow down to the Lord who is the sovereign ruler, not just of a small piece of real estate there in the Middle East, but of the entire world. So let's draw six brief lessons from this as we prepare to take communion together. First of all, pride is deceptive. Verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride makes us think we are independent, self-sufficient, unconquerable, always right. Pride is based on a lie. Pride lies to you and says that you can be like God's. And therefore, you are self-sustaining and self-sufficient and all-wise and do not need the accountability or the leadership of anyone Pride distorts every area of thought and life. And that's important to know because the second point we're going to make is God hates pride and will bring it down. It is a fearful thing when you meditate on the truth that our actions and our attitudes do not escape the gaze of God. He sees everything. And just because he doesn't swoop in and act immediately does not mean the person has gotten away with it. 
Verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Or as Jesus taught in Luke 16, 15, what is exalted among men, and the context is money, wealth, and power, what is exalted among men, Jesus says, is an abomination in the sight of God. Third, proud nations and proud individuals will reap what they sow. Look at verse 15. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. So when the wrath of God comes, are you safe? When the day of the Lord comes, are you safe? Because unrepentant pride, okay, for an unbeliever, Pride will be like a canvas tent in a Category 5 hurricane. That's how it will sustain you. Psalm 76, 7-9 says, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Fourth, God has made a way of escape and salvation from his wrath. Look at verse 17. In Mount Zion, there shall be those that escape and it shall be holy. And it's through that seed. You remember this, right? Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so you've got this this line through which the Savior and the Redeemer is born. Fifth, God is the one true sovereign king right now. And this really should be an encouragement to those who are fearful and weak. The world is not spinning out of control. Evil nations don't get to do what they want to do. God is sovereignly directing nations for his glory. The judge of the earth is doing right right now. And then sixth, the day of the Lord will find its complete fulfillment, but still yet future. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Let me read to you 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. Paul writes this to this church, to a church now. So this prophecy has been fulfilled. Obadiah has been carried forward, but there is still the complete fulfillment of the day of the Lord up ahead. And Paul writes this. God is just, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. He will, future tense, pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when, that's the timing. Okay, when will that happen, Paul? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now, has that happened yet? No. That's the day of the Lord. And when Jesus says to eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. So the question for you this morning is this. Have you obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus?
right? Our sixth point or our fifth point was that God has made a way of escape. Have you obeyed the gospel? Jesus came preaching, repent and believe the gospel. Have you obeyed? And if you look at the book of Revelation, which most of it is still yet future, it is a sustained revelation of the universal kingship of Jesus Christ as Lord. And in that kingship, there is judgment because the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is, that's judgment. But the free gift of God's grace is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's grace. So in, in contrast to Edom's pride and violence, in contrast to our pride and our violence, even if it's simply violence in our heart, stands Jesus, the hope of the world, who, listen, listen to this, he descended. They're perched above. Who can bring me low? God provides a way of escape. And he comes down low and he serves to save. Second Corinthians, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, right? Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray.